Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Dr. Eric Greenberg. It is January 7th, 2018 at 4.21 p.m. Pacific Time. I don't know whether it's standard or daylight savings time. I don't remember what that is, and I don't know if half of you remember what that sort of thing is. You know. Anyway, we don't have a name for this show yet. For the moment, we'll just call it the Dr. Eric Greenberg Show. And I want to thank you all very much for tuning in and listening to this. I really hope that I will be able to entertain, inspire, encourage, and impassion all of you, perhaps for many years from this point onward. Um, to give you a little bit of background about myself regarding my profession, my credentials, things like that, I am essentially an educator. I'm a college professor. I've been teaching on the college level since 2003, actually. Um, formally, at least, having had a few uh, gigs as a teaching assistant prior to that. But having my own class and teaching on the college level, I began in January of 2003. I have been teaching at Loyola Marymount University for uh, that entire, well, through for most of that time, beginning in January 2003, with a brief hiatus or respite in between. Uh, I also currently teach at and am Dean of Academics at a small Christian college in Los Angeles, called Ezra University, a wonderful school, and I'm helping them um, get off the ground and uh, obtain their initial accreditation and move forward in their, uh, in their life cycle as a university. Uh, so I do teach there, but I'm also the uh, Dean of Academics. Um, also, I am the founder of the Institute for Religious Tolerance, Peace, and Justice, or IRTPJ, because I know that's kind of a mouthful. Uh, we like to call it uh, the Institute for short, which is actually a little Seinfeld reference for those of you who are Seinfeld fans, of which I am one, a fanatic. So the Institute was founded in uh, 2011, actually, as an organization, a nonprofit organization to, uh, to promote interfaith dialogue and, um, <clears throat> excuse me, interfaith dialogue and um, collaboration between the world's religions as method of uh, a pathway to world peace. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm having a little uh, thing in my, a uh, little frog in my throat here. I'm going to take a sip of water and I'm uh, going to see if we want to even keep this in and let this uh, part of the audio be a little bit more folksy. Kind of put the rest of you at ease. We'll decide whether we want to edit that out later on. But I am essentially an educator on the college level, but I've also um, been focusing a lot on educating people outside of academia as well, since those in the 18 to 22-year-old demographic, the, collegiate, the college students, the undergraduates, are only a small portion of the United States and uh, certainly a small portion of the world. I enjoy educating people from all different walks of life, all different avenues, passions, and so forth. But I have a passion for religious studies, and maybe I can talk a little bit about where that came from. I grew up on Long Island. In fact, that, in a lot of ways, I consider that the old country, much more than any of the particular countries of origin that my ancestors came from. In a lot of ways, I look at uh, Long Island, New York, as the old country, uh, what some of my ancestors might have looked, uh, considered um, regarding Romania or Germany or Sicily or wherever they came from, and I do have a big mix in my background. I am the product of an interfaith marriage, my mother having been raised in a predominantly Catholic family, Roman Catholic. Uh, they were predominantly um, 
German, French, Czechoslovakian, and Sicilian. Um, my father's side of the family, they are all Eastern European Jews. One might claim uh, from uh, the region of Bessarabia, which is now a part of, as I understand it, a part of Romania, but at the time it was, uh, I believe, part of Transylvania, called Bessarabia, um, and also from uh, Odessa, what at the time was uh, part of the Russian Empire, now I believe it's part of the Ukraine. So we were Eastern European Jews. Um, both sides of the family came here to the United States somewhere in the late 1800s. Um, so I'm actually a very uh, firm part of the fabric of the United States in terms of my heritage. Um, as I mentioned that I kind of think of Long Island, New York as the old country. I'm very proud of my New York heritage. And, and of course, both, both sides, of course, but particularly my mother's side of the family, um, my grandfather, well, actually my great-grandfather and my grandfather, both of them, um, were builders, father and son. Um, they both worked on the, uh, they were marble polishers originally in New York City. They worked on the Chrysler Building, the Empire State Building, among other buildings. Uh, and then went into a variety of different forms of local and less commercial forms of construction. And my grandfather built approximately 40 houses on Long Island before he retired, uh, including the house that I grew up in. Um, so I'm very proud of, of having been part of the, the, the family that, uh, one of the families that helped to build New York in many ways, uh, part of that movement of, of immigrants that came to the United States in that, in that period of time and, and helped build. Um, so having come from this interfaith upbringing of, uh, Catholic on one side and, and Jewish on the other side, my, I, I should explain, my mother grew up in pre-Vatican II Roman Catholicism. And if any of you, my listeners, do not know what that means or what that's about, the Vatican II Council, or Second Vatican, uh, Second Vatican Council, which was convened under Pope John XXIII, I believe, in 1962 and continued until uh, 1965 under the, uh, the subsequent Pope, Pope Paul VI, was a major ecumenical council of the Roman Catholic Church in which a lot of uh, particular doctrines and standpoints and policies were, one might say, either clarified or re-clarified or shifted. Uh, it was, in a lot of ways, a major shift for the Roman Catholic Church, but uh, people of a certain age group, older than a certain age group, will remember what it was like in pre-Vatican II Roman Catholicism and will often talk about how how unwelcoming it was and how brutal the education was for small children. And this, these are some of the things that my mother uh, used to talk about. Um, some of the abuse, and I'm not even talking about the sexual abuse scandals that we hear about today. We're talking about out-and-out -out physical abuse, um, uh, abuse of, of power, uh, physical abuse uh, of, of little children by the priests and nuns. Um, my mother attempted to be the perfect Roman Catholic child, the perfect little girl, held her hands together in exactly the right way. I'm doing that right now, even though you can't see it. I, she held her hands together exactly in the right way, prayed perfectly, stood upright perfectly, did exactly as she was asked in the perfect ritualistic manner. Partly because she believed that's what God wanted her to do, and partly because she was scared of getting beaten by the authority figures. But she had a lot of questions. She was a knowledge seeker, as we used to call her. 
She asked a lot of questions, and this was not what the authority figures wanted. And they generally did not answer her questions head-on. Sometimes they would say, Oh, don't worry your pretty little head about it. You'll understand when you get older. And she never did, particularly issues regarding the Trinity. You know, is it one God? Is it three gods? One and three? Three and one? What is it? And they would tell her, don't worry about it. Don't think about it. Just memorize this. Memorize the catechism. And you'll understand when you get older. And well, she got older. And she still didn't understand. Uh, she said that the... Well, I should mention that she had a lot of Jewish friends growing up. And Judaism was a religion that particularly attracted her particularly regarding their, um, their love of knowledge and also their tendency to question and challenge God. I think this is something that we're going to talk about uh, later on, perhaps later in this podcast or in other podcasts. That's a very, very significant issue regarding the character of Judaism. But this is one of the things that attracted her to Judaism as a religion, its tendency to challenge God, to question God. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. It's not only a, a function of rabbinic Judaism, but it's been in Judaism and its precursors of Israelite, ancient Israelite religion for a long, long time. But she loved that. She loved its, its inquisitiveness. Um... And so, having these friends who were Jews, she gravitated toward Judaism. And, in a lot of ways, perhaps wished that she were Jewish rather than Catholic. Well, at some point, at least as the story goes, somewhere about the age of 18, she had found out that among the many investments that the Catholic Church had for its, its, its money, that at some point it was discovered that um, they had invested in a condom factory. Uh, now, of course, as you know, the Roman Catholic Church's official position has been for quite a long time that uh, any form of artificial contraception is a no-no. Um, and so if, if they're preaching that, uh, that you've got to keep having children, don't practice contraception. You know, the, the so-called rhythm method is the only uh, form of contraception that you should be practicing. Um, so... You know, we got to keep having more children for the Catholic Church. More children, more, more people. doesn't matter if we can support them financially or if they're starving to death. We need more people. This is kind of what she was expressing at the time. This was the, the sentiment of the time. And those of you listening, please don't think that, I am, um, that I'm disparaging the Catholic Church at this point in time. I'm actually a great um, a proponent of the Roman Catholic Church, a great supporter, I think, Catholic, uh, Catholic doctrine in a lot of ways... Um, sort of like a, a second uh, reformation or counter-reformation. Things needed to be changed. Things needed to be, uh, needed to grow up a little bit. And that's what happened during the Vatican II Council. But talking about what it was like beforehand and the kind of effect that it had on my mother and ultimately the effect that it had on me as her child, uh, she talked about finding out this, this, this utter hypocrisy. Now, of course, it, it probably was something that was just done by their, uh, by their, 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 um, uh, financial management team. It probably wasn't anything deliberate. Uh, and of course, after this was found out, um, they divested from that particular uh, business venture. Um, but my mom looked at this as as sort of an example of in the iniquities of the Catholic Church. She had sort of her Martin Luther moment in a lot of ways. And this, at this point, it kind of coincided with her going to college, and she decided that she wanted to convert to Judaism. Now, by the way, I have since that time tried to uh, try to find out through Google or any kind of research as to what this was. Are there any newspaper articles about that? 
suddenly finding out that the Catholic Church had a uh, had an investment in a condom factory. You know, on one hand, disparaging um, artificial methods of contraception, but on the other hand, investing in uh, in in contraception. I don't know. I haven't been able to find this, but I think what's more important is the notion that this was my mother's experience. This is what she had found out at the time. This it had an effect on her. So regardless of what the facts of the actual incident are. Um, it affected her in a certain way. So she began the process of conversion to Judaism uh, in college before she met my father, actually. Um, a few years after college, uh, my parents went together, went to college together, but they were friends at the time only. A few years later after college, they began to date. And when they got engaged and got married, they did get married in the Jewish synagogue. And the process of her conversion was completed at that point in time. A few years after that, after they had me, both of my parents went on their own personal religious exploration, their own personal religious search. They, they both realized as a couple that organized religion altogether did not serve them. It did not lead them to find the kinds of spiritual and religious answers that they were looking for. Uh, so while Judaism was more useful to my mother than the Catholicism she had grown up in, it still was not sufficient, the, the way it was at the time. And I think my father was the same way in terms of his understanding of Judaism. We did not, I did not grow up in an observant household. We were not Shomer Shabbos or anything of the sort. I didn't go to Hebrew school. I didn't get bar mitzvah, at least not in a formal sense. Um, we believed that we were at least nominally Jewish, name, at least in name. But the older I get, the older I got, I realized... I was not the same kind of Jew as any of my classmates in school. They were going to Hebrew school, getting bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah and so forth, and I was doing none of that. And yet, we believed that we were Jews. So my understanding of Judaism was very different than my other friend's conception of Judaism. It was a much more secular form of Judaism, um, certainly not observant and not kosher. Um, Growing up, we were geographically closer to the Catholic side of the family. The majority of my Jewish relatives lived in New Jersey, and so we didn't see them more than once a year, maybe twice at most. And so, so my exposure to, to, you know, to to the prevalent forms of Judaism at the time was somewhat limited, um, in terms of my family exposure. Even though I I had a, a certain uh, interest in it, it, it was somewhat mitigated by my exposure to and rearing in the presence of Catholicism as the, the, the hegemonic, there's a fancy word for you, a college word, the, the hegemonic um, identity of the family as a, as a Catholic family, that, that side of the family, the, uh, my mother's side. So growing up around the Christian holidays and that sort of thing, uh, you know, I didn't know what we were. Am I Christian? Am I Jewish? We at least nominally believe we're Jewish, but we're not much like the, the Jews in my classes. So what are we? So when I finally went off to college, it took a very short period of time before I realized, hey, you know what? I want to study religion. I want to study religious studies. Not necessarily to become a priest, a minister, a rabbi, a pastor, or whatever. Not necessarily to promote and practice religion on a formal level, on an observant level, but to understand it. I was confused about religion, but simultaneously impassioned, excited about it, intrigued by it. So... I started studying it on the academic level. Of course, I never lost my deep sense of spirituality, and I think this is something that I had from a very, very, very small, 
from being a very small child. At a very young age, I had a very deep interest in spirituality, even though we couldn't actually put it into words what we were. Oh, we're a Christian, we're a family, or we're a Jewish family, we're this, we're that. I was raised believing that there was a kernel of truth, maybe more than a kernel of truth, but some significant truth in every major world religion, and that we needed to listen to that. So I grew up believing that we were nominally Jewish, but I grew up around aging hippies who owned a uh, hippie health food store and metaphysical bookstore. Food for mind and bo- excuse me, food for body, mind and soul in Northport. Uh, it has now become uh, Northport Health Food under different ownership. It's already gone through a series of owners since that time. But uh, by the way, I want to give a shout out to anybody who remembers food for body, mind and soul in Northport. And if if you if any of you who were part of that community, Roger and Eleanor or anybody ever happen to listen to this, I love you so much and thank you for including me in 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 that amazing movement. But but anyway, this was an amazing thing for a you know a five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten year old to grow up in, um, in that community. Uh, a lot of from what I understand, a lot of people who were in that particular community, some of them were mystics, some of them were practicing Sufism, and they weren't necessarily from an ethnically um, Muslim oriented background. A lot of these people were. Um, were people of uh, Jewish background who had gone on their own personal spiritual search, much like us. Some of you listening to this might know the word Hindu or Jubu. It's sort of a kind of a playful uh, portmanteau talking about people who are ethnically Jewish, but who in the last couple of decades uh, are part of the growing movement of of the New Age movement, the spiritual movement, people who have begun to practice certain Eastern religions or so-called non-traditional religions uh, that they did not grow up with, such as Buddhism or Hinduism and so forth, but who have never lost their connection to their Jewish heritage. So anyway, a lot of these people were Hindus or Jubus or whatever, um, part of the the peace movement, part of the hippie movement, uh, you know, and I... I grew up learning from these these people who owned and, and operated this health food store and metaphysical bookstore. So that was, in a lot of ways, the um, the origin of my spirituality. Um, so ultimately, going off to college, studying religion, studying it on an academic level, but also still having some connection to the notion that religion is a good thing, and that I want to understand what I believe in, what I do or do not believe in even though I can't pigeonhole myself into one particular category. We're a Jew, we're not Jew, whatever. So, you know, one might ask, well, what are you? What are you now? What do you believe? Well, in a lot of ways, interfaith is my religion. I do a lot of interfaith work. Having brought up in an interfaith upbringing, I do a lot of interfaith work now through the Institute for Religious Tolerance, Peace, and Justice. Um, I'm both Jew and Christian. You know, we have to ask, what is a Jew? Judaism has changed so much over the last 5,000 years. I had a a friend, an acquaintance in grad school, a really wonderful woman um, who happened to come from a Jewish background. I won't name her name. I don't want her to feel uncomfortable if she ever hears this. But uh, I remember at one point uh, we were in a cultural studies class. She was not in the field of religion, but we had a class together in cultural studies. I think she was from uh, anthropology or cultural studies as as her uh, academic program. But we were talking about cultures changing, religions changing, and she somewhat proudly but uncritically piped up and said, my religion hasn't changed in 5,000 years. And I said to her, well, that's, that's incorrect. Judaism has changed dramatically over the last 5,000 years. She said, how? 
And I said, well, we're no longer speaking Hebrew on a daily basis as our primary uh, language. We are also no longer speaking Aramaic. The, the, the language of daily life has changed. Uh, we're, uh, we are no longer sacrificing in the temple in Jerusalem. There is no temple in Jerusalem. It was destroyed several times, rebuilt and destroyed again. But it has never been rebuilt since the final time that it was destroyed. So we don't have a, a, a sacrificial cultus in the temple in Jerusalem anymore for about 2,000 years at this point. So uh, Judaism has changed dramatically from temple Judaism to what we now call rabbinic Judaism and so forth. So all religions change. And so there are many ways for us to define, well, what is a Jew? Similarly, what is a Christian? I talked to some of my Christian colleagues uh, and, and friends that Christianity has changed dramatically over the course of time. That um, some of the earliest progenitors of Christianity, some of the earliest thinkers, some of the uh, what we would call the, the, Christ, the, the early church fathers, people like the Apostle Paul, saints, apostles, disciples, people who we today look back upon as founders of Christianity, many of them did not believe the way modern Christians believe. There are tremendous and dramatic differences in the way that they believed then and the way many Christians believe now. And we'll go into this in the future. And I hope that, that leaving that on your plate with no garnish or explanation doesn't, doesn't anger anyone too much. I promise we'll get into that in the future. Um, so the question is, what, well, am I a Christian? Am I a Jew? What kind of Christian am I? How do you define Christian? What kind of Jew am I? How do you define Jew? So in a lot of ways, I, I try to reject labels, pigeonholes, boxes. So, but generally, if, if a person asks me, I guess I would, you know, in, the, in a mouthful, describe myself as a Hellenistic Jew with Gnostic Christian leanings, whatever that means. We can talk about that if you have an hour or two in the future. Bottom line, labels confine us rather than define us, I would like you to, to remember. So depending upon whom I'm talking to, my answer may differ in terms of who I am or what I am, but I still have a relationship with God that is very personal as I choose to conceive of him, her, or it, whatever God is, if God is beyond gender or whatever, or if God encompasses all of the genders, any gender, however we define gender. All right, that's a loaded topic. Let's move on. So also, who am I? What am I here for? My credentials, my profession. So I've mentioned I am, by, by trade, I am a college professor. I have two masters and a PhD, all of which in the field of religion or something related to religion. Every school calls it something different. Some schools call it theological studies, whatever. So I got two masters and a PhD. My primary um, <clears throat> field of, of inquiry or my primary discipline within religious studies is that of biblical studies and more specifically New Testament and Christian origins. So I'm an expert in New Testament and Christian origins doesn't mean that I know everything. There's a lot I don't know. In fact, if anything, paraphrasing, um, <clears throat> paraphrasing Einstein. No, actually, it's, I'm sorry, it's not Einstein. It's actually Socrates, who, when he was praised by, I believe it was the, um, the oracle at Delphi, the Pythian priestess, she said that Socrates was the wisest man alive. When he heard about this um, after the fact, he said, only because I know exactly how unwise I am. So with that in mind, you know, I'm not an expert. Well, rather, I'm an expert, but that doesn't mean I know everything. I know exactly how much I don't know. Um, so, 
kind of reminds me a little bit of um, just a quick anecdote. One of my professors and mentors, um, I'd love to give a shout out to him, uh, Dr. James Sanders, who just turned 90 recently. Uh, one of the greatest human beings I have ever met. May he live for another 90. Uh, one of my mentors from my graduate education and also a close personal friend. He's also on the board of directors of the Institute. But I remember him talking about someone. I don't, rem I don't quite remember the the details of the anecdote, but he was talking so about somebody in the field of of ancient Near Eastern studies, which is one of the associated fields um, within the larger context of, uh, within uh, the fields of, of biblical studies. But this person was, that he was referring to, uh, had forgotten more about, I think it was Akkadian, the Akkadian language, but the person had forgotten more in their life than most of us will ever know. So with that in mind, I know there's a lot of people out there brighter than me who know a lot more than me. So with that in mind, why am I here? Why am I here talking to you? Why do I expect or ask or request or beg you to even listen to me? Some guy, some guy, some transplanted New Yorker in Los Angeles yammering into a microphone. Why am I asking you to listen to me? I have a need, a call. I feel the call to be a public intellectual, a thought leader. Something outside of merely the classroom. I have felt the call to have a profound and positive, lasting effect on the world. And perhaps talking into a microphone in the most recent form of mass media, what we would call um, podcasts and, and things like that, through the internet, through the, the myriad forms of, of mass media that have become revolutionized through the internet, so we don't have to you know, beg people in, in Hollywood or in Radio City to let us in, the gatekeepers... We are our own gatekeepers now because of this wonderful internet thing. So anyway, so here I am yammering into a microphone. Um, I want to have a profound and positive and lasting effect on the world through this microphone. And hopefully this may, this may be one way to do it. So why do I feel competent to do so? Why, what, what is so different between me and anybody else? Well, obviously I've got a whole bunch of degrees on the subject of religion. And, and I, will, I will reiterate that this podcast primarily is about the topic or the twin topics of religion and spirituality. And we will in the future go into the differences between religion and spirituality and are there differences. Some of you might say yes, some of you might say no, we'll deal with that. But it's uh, two sides of the same coin. So obviously I have a lot of academic background in that subject and also personal background, non-academic background in the topic, having come from these, these multitudes of different religions, the confluence between these religions, and having worked with a lot of people in a lot of different religions. So I have background in that. I have experience in the interfaith movement. I have experience in, in organizing. I'm just trying to sell you on myself right now. I'm not trying to brag. I'm just trying to say why you should continue to listen after we've already gone through, what, 27 minutes of this? Anyway, hopefully I will, um, hopefully I will entertain you in this, especially with some of my classic New York Jewish self-effacing humor. Hopefully that will be enjoyable to some of you from time to time. Um, so there are a lot of other people, let me, let me just say this, there are a lot of other people out there with far less life experience than I have who have been giving people advice and leadership for a long time. And there's lots of people listening to those people through radio, television, film, saying, follow me, listen to me. I have the answers. I know the way. All right. And I'm, I want to mention two people in particular. 
interesting people, one of whom is Glenn Beck. Now, some of you know Glenn Beck, a conservative talk radio host. Um, and I'm not going to say he's a bad person or a good person. I have a lot of disagreements with things he's said in the past, but in interestingly, recently has changed his tunes on a number of, of, of issues, quite shockingly, um, to kind of be a sort of an about-face regarding certain issues. We also, on the other have, uh, hand, have another example, uh, Andrew Anglin. If you don't know who he is, he is the proud founder of the Daily Stormer website, which has been in the news recently, and a major player in the so-called alt-right white supremacist movement. So uh, the latter person, uh, Andrew Anglin, has gone through a series of life changes over the years, leading him from one end of the political spectrum to the other, starting out uh, as, as sort of a crazy hippie liberal guy to being a, a white supremacist neo-Nazi guy who's essentially the, the uber-Nazi in a lot of ways. And that's the guy. That's the guy who founded the Daily Stormer website and, and, uh, and forum that was uh, shut down a few months back and was hopping from one, one internet provider to another. And I don't even know where it is at the, at the moment, if it even exists. But So he's got perhaps a few hundred thousand followers, if not, not more. So God only knows where he is geographically right now and also politically and ideologically. Who knows where he is? And of course, people have the right to change their minds. So Glenn Beck has the right to change his mind. Andrew Anglin has the right to change his mind. Everyone has the right to progress and grow and transform. This is wonderful for people to progress, tr grow and transform. But don't claim you have all the answers and then change course, still claiming the correctness of your current views. While in actuality, you're trying to figure it out as you go. Don't go leading people into a minefield while you're trying to figure out the map. Do it on your own time. Figure it out first before you claim to be a leader of men, so to speak. And women. And children. And kitty cats and puppy dogs. Alright, sorry about that. Um, my point is, yes, people have the right to change their minds. But I think that before they claim to be a leader in any way, figure it out for crying out loud. Because you're going to make a lot of us look like idiots if we follow you into a ditch. And I think that's what a number of these these figures, a number of these people um, have done. And and you know what? I, I don't want you listening to this thinking, ah, okay, so obviously this guy is, um, you know, bleeding heart liberal. Um, he hates all the conservative folks that I'm listening to and so forth. I don't want you to pigeonhole me and automatically think, okay, that's that's where this guy is. I can stop listening. I am neither a liberal or a conservative. In a lot of ways, I am politically a moderate. I've got some liberal leanings, progressive leanings. I've got some conservative leanings. And we can go into that as time wears on, as I continue to yammer at whoever is, is, is left listening in this cyber room and share with you some of my ideas. But I think some of the mo most important things for me are to reject hypocrisy and to go towards righteousness and justice. And I frankly don't really care how we get there in terms of what side of the political spectrum we're on. All right, I think that both sides of the political spectrum have some answers in this country. We need to hold ourselves to a higher standard of honor, honesty, justice, righteousness. Those are some of the things I'm going to talk about. So um, with that in mind... Um, with that in mind, we have a lot of people in this country 
in a variety of forms of, of media who are claiming to be experts, who are demanding your attention, who are demanding you follow them. Well, I'm not going to demand that anybody follow me. I, I'm not that arrogant as to, as to demand that people follow me. I think I have some good ideas. Um, I think that I have remained silent long enough throughout my life and observed and calculated and thought and pondered and had experiences and worked with people that finally I think it's time for me to speak up and speak out. Now, I, I remember when I was about 15, um, I, had a, I had a cousin, it's actually my mother's first cousin, wonderful guy, Nicholas, um, who uh, was a very deeply spiritual and deeply intellectual person. And uh, as a 15-year-old, I remember writing some kind of a pseudo-political treatise. I won't even go into what it, what it was, because I'm a little embarrassed about it. It was, it was, you know, it was kid stuff. But anyway, I remember thinking, I want to preach this. I think this is the way that humanity should be, and I've written this, handwritten this, what, five-page manifesto, whatever, in my little, you know, in my little cursive at the age of 15 or whatever, and I want to preach this to people. And I shared this with, with Cousin Nicholas, and he very gently but firmly said, well, don't you think that you should have more life experiences before you start preaching? Don't you think that you should gain more wisdom? Now, of course, at the time, I was a little insulted because I was thought, I was thinking, oh, I'm so wise. I'm so wiser than the average 15-year-old. I'm much wiser than, than people twice my age. Well, maybe I was, maybe I wasn't. That still doesn't necessarily give me the right to preach at people. I don't want to be the next Andrew Anglin and wind up preaching to people hate and and um, and division the way that Andrew Anglin has preached in the last several years having changed from being something a lot more progressive than that I mean the guy has, has taken a, a complete 180 uh, and perhaps now back to 360 I don't know you know I don't want to be that guy they, uh, I believe it's the, it's the I Ching, um, uh, an ancient uh, Chinese um, oracle, I guess we would say, um, from the largely Confucian tradition, which talks about um, people who really have nothing to say, who have no intelligence, who have no wisdom. Sometimes they're like a, like an empty, an empty bronze vessel, like a clanging gong that's just loud and obnoxious. But it doesn't really have anything to say. It's just empty. So I have refrained from speaking for a very long time. But I think now is the time for me to share what wisdom I believe I have for the world. And share it in this particular forum, this platform. And hopefully some people will listen. Um, I do a certain amount of public speaking through my, uh, my interfaith work. But I would like to go further. I would like to take it to the next level. Now I want to go to the next, uh, the next topic here, which is related to that. Um, this particular platform, this podcast, is separate from the Institute for Religious Tolerance, Peace, and Justice. It is separate, a separate venture, a separate gig from the IRTPJ for a variety of reasons, not least of which is that there are certain things that nonprofit organizations, like the Institute, as a 501c3 nonprofit corporation under the Internal Revenue Code of the United States, there are certain things that they cannot engage in, such as influencing legislation or electioneering and so forth. Uh, it is illegal for them to do so, um, largely under the notorious Johnson Amendment, which in a lot of ways is a very good thing. Uh, this helps to 
uh, in a lot of ways, it, it helps to maintain that separation between church and state so that various nonprofit organizations and particularly religious nonprofit organizations cannot start endorsing particular political candidates or pouring lots, lots and lots of church money into um, electing certain candidates or, or undermining certain candidates. <clears throat> so, but there are a lot of these things that I might want to comment on. And I have every right to comment on them, and I think I have some thoughts on them that the general public might like to hear, but I'm going to have to do it separately from the Institute. So I will remind people that, that any of my opinions are my own and do not, <clears throat> excuse me, do not uh, necessarily represent the opinions or the standpoints or the policies of the Institute for Religious Tolerance, Peace, and Justice. We are separate, separate entities. Um, even though I am the founder and president of the Institute, there are certain things that I might say that the rest of the board of directors and other um, members of the organization might not necessarily agree with. So I want to keep those separate. Also, in addition to polit politics, there might be some things that I want to talk about that are outside the scope of the IRTPJ, such as health or fitness or more concrete aspects of spirituality that would not necessarily fall within the scope of the IRTPJ's interfaith mission. It might just be completely extraneous for me to start talking about one of my other passions, such as powerlifting, um, or where that coincides or crosses with spirituality, because I think it is actually a very spiritual pursuit, uh, how powerlifting has has been embodied in my life, um, and how that is related to my passion for health and natural living and so forth. The Institute doesn't have anything to do with that. So I don't want to, I don't want to necessarily get them involved. So, so that is, if I want to talk about my own personal spiritual experiences or beliefs or any supernatural or paranormal experiences that I may have had in my life or claim to have had, healthy dose of skepticism there, um, or whatnot, that might be outside the scope of the IRTPJ's mission. So I, once again, I want to reiterate that any opinions expressed here are exclusively in my own and should not be construed to represent the opinions or standpoints or policies of the IRTPJ. So going back to the issue of one of my greatest passions, one of my greatest missions in life is education. We live in a time when education is not truly valued for its own sake, it's often only valued insofar as it is a means to an end, that it can lead to greater profits or higher income. Rather, we don't often treat it as the necessity, the necessity that it is for an effective democracy to take place. All of the worst regimes in the world seem to have been empowered by a lack of education. I'm thinking of the Khmer Rouge, which, which as part of its platform, rejected education and actually sought out anybody from who formerly was a teacher as being um, a, a, a pawn of the former government regime and that all teachers and all intellectuals have to be killed. So a number of the, the, you know, the Marxist and communist uh, regimes that we've seen in the last hundred years or so in a variety of different places around the world seem to have had in a lot of ways sort of a, a, an anti-intellectual bent we also see the Taliban in, in uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan uh, being very anti-intellectual. Right? Also, once again, and, and I'm sorry to bring up Catholicism, but the medieval Catholic Church, prior to the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation, seems to have gained its totalitarian and destructive powers of the time from the lack of education of the populace in Europe 
at that time, the many, many adherents to Catholicism. In a lot of ways, they were kept down due to their inability to read and write and so forth. This is one of the reasons that the Protestant Reformation was so, so I'm, 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 uh, I'm loath to say hell-bent at this time while, while we're talking about Christianity, but, but they were you know, so emphatic, let's say, emphatic about universal literacy so that every man, woman, and child, every Christian can read the Bible for themselves and not have to uh, rely upon some, some popish priest, so to speak. Uh, some representative of the papacy as the intermediary between them and God. All right. So one of the reasons why uh, the printing press became so important and such an important tool of the spread of Protestant Christianity um, and as Protestantism spread to the so-called New World, to the, the colonies, to the United States and so forth, we got a lot of converts who were taught to read the Bible because of this this platform of universal literacy. So um, but interestingly, intriguingly, now there are certain factions of Christian fundamentalists who decry education and intellectualism as if it were the bane of Christ, as if it were his enemy, as if it were the, the source of the downfall of Western civilization, as if too much intellectualism stood in the way of Christ. And yet, and yet, many fundamentalists from the so-called Christian right, are very happy when STEM education, by STEM I mean uh, the uh, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, you know, the, the more important things, the hard, the hard sciences, the, the, the most important parts of education, not that fluffy stuff like art and music and literature and all that stuff, you know, they're very happy when STEM education is taught because it enriches the military-industrial complex. It enriches big pharmaceuticals, big agriculture, and the major donors of the political parties that pander to the most, to most of the conservative Christian right. So there's hypocrisy here that we need to look at if our country is to survive, if Western civilization is to survive, and if the great religion of Christianity is to survive. And I hope that that will stand to you as a testament that I'm not here to, to disparage Christianity or to disparage America or Western civilization or conservatives or liberals. I want to see honor. I want to see justice. I want to see... Um, a rejection of hypocrisy. That's what I want to see. And I want to see the, the, the dismantling of any kind of hypocrisy in any political ideology or religious ideology. I think it's dangerous. Um, you know, I, I, I love all religions. I think every religion has something to offer this world. I don't want to be seen as somebody who only, he's, he's, a, he's a tool of the liberal left, and you know, he's a tool of, of non-Christian religions, and he wants to stamp out Christianity. No, that's not me. You may have misunderstood me if you think that's me. Right? I want to see Christians be the best Christians they can be. I want to see Jews be the best Jews they can be. I want to see Muslims be the best Muslims they can be. Because among all of us, I think there is a, um, a common... There is common ground, a common denominator, there's a kernel of truth that all of us share. And if we pull together and be the best we can be in our religion, the most moral, the most ethical, keep ourselves to a very high standard of ethical conduct, then I think the world will be a better place. And later on, we can argue with each other over whose concept of God or the sublime or the universe is better and more accurate. Meanwhile, I think we need to pull together and be the best we can be, and to solve the world's problems, hunger, poverty, uh, pollution, anything. 
All right, we'll talk more about all that stuff. But so I think we're going to have to take a long, honest look at all of these things. And nobody is going to be spared from the lens of truth if, if it's in my hands. To quote the Apostle Paul, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I believe that's Romans 3.3. 3. Right, we're all going to have to take a look at our shortcomings in, to, in order to make this grand experiment work. What grand experiment am I talking about? Well, I'm talking a little bit about the United States and a little bit about humanity, about Earth. All right, that's our grand experiment. Are we going to succeed or are we going to die out because we all killed each other or polluted each other to death? All right. So I want to share with you, I want to try to keep this, this podcast to under an hour at about 44 minutes here on my clock. Um, I want to share with you just a couple of things, just a little bit of a, a treat, a little whet your appetite of things to come. Um, I have a prescription, like a doctor, you know, I'm, well, I am a doctor. I'm a doctor of philosophy. I'm not a medical doctor. Uh, you know, I'm not that kind of doctor. I'm not the, the kind of doctor that can help you with that rash. But as a doctor, doctor meaning wise or wise teacher in Latin, doctus meaning wise, doctor meaning one who spreads wisdom in Latin. So I am a doctor, a teacher, a wise teacher. I have a prescription. I'm going to make it out on this prescription pad here for the world that I am working on. It is a work in progress, but it is based on four words that begin with the letter R. And I'm trying to start a bloodless revolution here. I love the idea of a revolution. I, you know, I've been watching a whole bunch of um, uh, shows on various networks about the, uh, the American Revolution, reading some, some stories about the American Revolution. Of course, these are all fictional, but it's, it's sort of impassioned me about that revolutionary spirit. And I'm thinking about the notion of revolution. Now, obviously, I, I, am, I am a peaceful person. Uh, I don't... And let me put this out there right now. You know, I do not support the violent overthrow of the American government, blah, blah, blah. Let's just say that, you know, get it out of the way. But I love the idea of a revolution of people, a bloodless revolution, a revolution of... revolution of righteousness, a revolution of justice, asking everyone to be as honorable and honest as possible, true to their religion, whatever that may be. Going back to the, well, one might say the fundamentals, not, not that I'm saying I'm a fundamentalist, but going back to the fundamentals of each of our religions. Um, the first of these R's is the word repentance. All of the Old Testament prophets from the Hebrew Old Testament, seem to point to the idea of repentance, changing our hearts, mending our ways, committing to do better than ever before. For instance, see the book of Amos. This is all about the prophet Amos preaching repentance to Israel, and he spares nobody's feelings. Man, he is brutal. I would love for us to talk about in the, that in the future. We can go more, more in depth into that. <clears throat> the whole book is his railing against the iniquities of Israel in a way that would make anyone today shiver if we heard someone talking about our country today that way. But this is part of the core belief system of the Old Testament. This means taking responsibility for our actions and our faults and being willing to apologize. Now, I've noticed something, a lot of people have noticed, that America currently has this unwillingness to apologize. Now, this, has been, this, is, this sentiment has been around for a while, but I think it has been exacerbated and people have been galvanized by the recent administration of our dear president um, who has sort of led the way. He has authorized people to be bold and unapologetic 
as if to apologize were a sign of weakness. And he talked about, oh, you know, the Obama administration, you know, they were always apologizing, apologizing for being America. We shouldn't be apologized for being Americans. You know, that's a sign of weakness. We should be bold, you know. Rather, I'm going to tell you, I think that's a sign of arrogance, of ungodly pride, and of utter sinfulness. Our nation seems to revel in arrogance, choosing not to apologize as if it were a sign of weakness. Often people, you know, somebody calls them, whether it's in the current administration or the supporters of the current administration, whether we're talking about, um, you know, Roy Moore, former uh, former uh, judge who uh, was uh, recently running for uh, Senate, for a Senate seat, um, and was accused of uh, being a multiple-time pedophile or statutory rapist, um, you know, I won't even get into that here. But many of his supporters and the supporters from that particular end of the political spectrum, they double down. You know, oh, you think, oh, you, you think I should apologize? Well, the heck with you, you know? We like being pedophiles. We like being statutory rapists. We have a right to be. You know, that's, that's because we're Americans. America. America. Someone accuses you of something, you double down and you claim that it's right. No matter how wrong it was in other people, no matter how wrong it was when we saw it and decried it in other people, five years ago, ten years ago, a few minutes ago, once they see it in us, no, 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 it's right, there's nothing wrong with it. For the moment, I'm going to call that, no, I won't even say what that is. All right. But every major prophet in the Old Testament and in the New Testament has preached repentance. Why should we be any different from ancient Israel? Why? Why should we be any different? Did they have different rules from us now? We can do it. Well, because we're America. America. We can do what we want. Manifest destiny. God told us we can do what we want. All right. Let me tell you. The best thing a friend can do for you is to tell you when you are wrong and help you to correct your behavior. That is a true friend. One who sides with you no matter what, is not a good friend. You get yourself into a bar fight because you got drunk out of your mind and you picked a fight with somebody. The guy who fights alongside of you and punches out innocent people is not a good friend. A good friend will either not let you get that drunk or drunk at all or pull you out of the fight before it even starts saying, oh, my friend is not feeling well. Please, you know, please forgive him. Let's take him home. All right. During the height of the Cold War, and I grew up during the height of, well, at least the, 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 the latter phase of the height of the Cold War. I grew up in the 70s and 80s. We were indoctrinated with America, love it or leave it, which was broadly construed to mean that you had to accept everything the government did and stood for, no questions asked. If you protested against anything America did, we were told, hey, why don't you go back to Russia, you commie? if anyone criticized any of America's policies or doings abroad or at home. After Vietnam, during the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, and further during the recent Iraq War, right, since, since 9-11, we've seen that one can still express support for our troops. So I think the, the current sentiment, the national sentiment has changed a bit, or at least until recently, that one can still ex express support for our troops in the sentiment of wanting to bring them home. The idea that people on the left who oppose these wars, hey, we're not opposing the troops, we love the troops, they're our sons and daughters, they're our, they're our friends, we want them to come home. We don't want to harm them by sending them to a war that maybe we shouldn't be involved in, you know, that sort of thing. 
So this has become more acceptable. The two are not mutually exclusive. You know, and I say the same thing regarding Israel. We get into that in the future, the notion of the modern nation-state of Israel and, um, you know, what it's doing, what it's not doing. And I'll, I'll state this up front. As a Jew, I support the right of Israel to exist. Indeed, it's very important. But I do not support every action that the government of Israel takes. In fact, there's a lot of what Israel does and says that I do not support. Right? Same as America, my home, where I was born, where I live, and hopefully will live for the rest of my days. I love my country, and I support its right to exist as well. Even though we began our country on the basis of genocide and slavery and forced migrations and so forth. A lot of people died for this country, and I don't mean people willingly dying. Also the people who were brutally murdered by settlers and colonists and so forth. All right? But I'm not going to apologize for my country's right to exist. Those things, we need to come to grips with those. We need to talk about them. We need to do what we can to correct the, the subsequent problems and fallout that were, that were caused by those, those original sins, we might cause, call them, the original sins of the starting of our nation. But I'm not going to suddenly say, oh, you know what? We should dismantle our nation and just go back to our various countries of origin, wherever they are from, wherever our ancestors are from. Just go back to those countries and live there and leave this country uh, to its original inhabitants and, you know, and let all the, the sidewalks get overgrown and so forth because we don't belong here. We don't deserve to be here. Now, that's not what I'm saying. I don't believe that. But as a true patriot, as any good friend would do, I point out the places where my country needs to improve. To do otherwise would not be patriotism. To say, America, love it or leave it. Well, yeah, I love it, and I'm not going to leave it, but I'm going to improve it. And that's, I think, one of the most important things about the spirit of our nation. Uh, a, a good friend of, a friend of mine in the interfaith movement had said something at one point uh, in, in, in light of the so-called... Uh, MAGA or Make America Great movement um, inaugurated by by President Trump. You know, she had questioned, you know, when was when was America ever great? And I disagreed with her. I think that America has always attempted to be greater from its very beginning. We have perhaps never gotten it right, but we've always tried to be greater, greater than we were beforehand, greater than the European. Um, monarchies and tyrannies that our earliest settlers and founding fathers came from. Did they get it right initially? No, not 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 entirely. There's a lot of people, a lot of people from from African countries who were brought here against their will, um, and enslaved, and they had no rights. There are a lot of people who were already here, human beings who had been living here for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. The indigenous Americans, the First Nations, the Native American Indians. All right, they were removed from their lands, brutally butchered, murdered, lands stolen, pushed westward, etc., etc. So no, we didn't get it right immediately, but we always strove to do better. And I think that's one reason why this country, this this is a wonderful country, despite all of our shortcomings, all of our faults. We always try to be better. So in that way, I think we're greater. And I think that always it, it kind of irked me when I'd hear people talk about make america great you know if somebody were to make america great again if somebody were to say that during the 1980s when i grow when i was growing up they'd get their butts handed to them 
What do you mean make America great again? What do you mean that it's not great? America's the greatest nation in the world. Hey, why don't you go back to Russia, you commie? They would have been told. All right? America is great. And yet, because a major political leader said it in the last two years, that underlying notion of America not being great anymore because of our uh, previous political leaders, because of our predecessors and so forth, uh, it's okay to say that it wasn't great, that it's not great anymore and we're going to make it great again. I'm sorry. I don't think America stopped being great. Didn't stop being great under Obama. Didn't stop being great under Bush. We've always been a mixed bag of good and not so good. And it's our responsibility as Americans to make it better. And to apologize, yes, to apologize for the bad things that we as a nation have done. And hey, maybe it's not even our individual responsibility. I know sometimes people don't like to to, to apologize for a nation or for a, a corporate entity because they feel like they're having to take personal responsibility. Well, you know what? I am not my ancestors. I didn't do what my ancestors did, or even somebody else's ancestors that looked like my ancestors. You know, I didn't have any ancestors here who pushed westward as settlers and oppressed the Native Americans. My ancestors came here after that time. All right? But the point is, we as a nation, we need to do better. We need to pull together and make amends for what our nation has done at times that wasn't so right. And we need to push, push forward and keep embodying that spirit of greatness that we had from the very beginning, that we always wanted to do better. We always wanted to do better than the monarchies and the tyrannies that our ancestors left in other areas of the world. So repentance and humility as the only things that will save us from our tendency to want to win at all costs. We need to be righteous rather than merely being right. And that's part of this understanding of repentance. So that's, that's the first R. Second R, responsibility. A key component of the former notion of uh, repentance is the idea of responsibility. Admitting one's agency in the commission of sins. We have seen a culture of omerta, and if you don't know what that means, sort of a, 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 a phrase within mafia ideology, a sort of silence among thieves. Don't cooperate with the law enforcement or squeal on your associates. That's omerta, like silence, like shh, don't say nothing. All right? There's a culture of omerta among us now in which we have been harboring fugitives and cads among us under a pretense of solidarity. We've seen this in the military at times where there are um, <clears throat> where there are, are um, any number of uh, breaching of codes or laws, regulations, where innocent civilians have been killed, where fellow service members have been raped, and so forth. We also see it in law enforcement, where people are are the uh, unarmed uh, victims of police killings, etc. We see it in private business. We see it in government. As a part of our unwillingness to repent or apologize, we see a perversion of the principle of death before dishonor, which, as many of you know, is a popular slogan that's used by many military units and has been used by many military units since ancient times. This means that, I mean, obviously it means we would rather die than to cause dishonor to our unit or our organization, right? That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Wow, that's, that's noble. It does not mean, however, kill the witnesses before they can testify. 
That's not what it means. It does not mean cover up our dishonorable deeds by killing those who witnessed them. That's not what it means. We need to hearken back to the days when death before dishonor meant that you were willing to take one for the team. That you would sacrifice your own kin if they did something to dishonor the family or the nation. Rather, if we have done wrong, if we have acted disgracefully in any way, we need to take responsibility for actions and make it right. That is true honor. Not to run away from our crimes and misdeeds and claim that they never took place or that it is fake news. Now I want to give one uh, one little example here. Forgive me, it looks like I'm going to go over an hour. Pardon me. You can shut this off if you don't want to listen to any anymore or save it for later. But uh, I'm going to go over a little. just going to give one example of something I want to talk about in the future. And this is kind of inspired by the so-called Me Too movement and the recognition that there are a lot of abusive men out there. And not just men, but just people. And there are a lot of people that have suffered from rape culture, that have suffered from the silencing of victims of rape, sexual assault, sexual harassment, a variety of different crimes and misdeeds. So, let me say this. And I'm going to say this as a man. Somebody who identifies as a cisgendered, heterosexual man. Men need to take responsibility for our kind and for our part in creating rape culture. And this is an admonishment to men. I'm talking to you men out here. All right, Anybody who identifies as a male. Maybe the traditional roles of men were not as, as misdirected as we thought, perhaps, on some level. All right? Now, I know a lot of things have changed over the course of time. That's fine. The idea of men being protectors, defenders, chaperones, witnesses. In an age with the so-called he said, she said taking center stage at this point, maybe the idea of having witnesses and chaperones can help ensure that if a woman is harmed, there are witnesses to support her story. Now, do I want to see regression? Do I want to see, well, every time a woman goes outdoors, we have to have a chaperone? You know, I, and I could put, I can do that in a whole bunch of different accents that represent different cultures that have that sort of regressive thinking. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying here is, we need to think about the ways in which our ancestors had some wisdom that could speak to our present. That excusing the behavior of the Brock Turners of the world, and look him up, that's that kid, water polo player who, who uh, sexually assaulted a young woman, <clears throat> and a number of, um, I, I think it was outside of a, outside of a party. You know, I don't know whether she was drunk or whether he had drugged her. I don't recall entirely, but he was sexually assaulting her behind a garbage dumpster outside of a party and a few innocent, a few bystanders, uh, uh, just people, members of the general public, do-gooders, came by, saw him, and they stopped him, right? And they were male. They stopped him. They did their job in a traditional sense. They did what a man should do. Be a defender. Be a witness. Be a pr protector. Right? So look him up. Right? Excusing the behavior of Brock Turners, the Brock Turners of the world, or Judge Leon Persky, the guy who let who essentially let Brock Turner off with a slap on the wrist, with a sort of a boys will be boys sentiment. Right? Excusing the behavior of these people, the Judge Leon Perskys of the world, showing the old boys club lenience upon Brock Turner, this must stop. Tough love is the only thing that's going to solve this problem. Those bastards. And the ones who harbor and, obeyed and aid and abet them, they are making 
good guys like me, and I'm going to put myself in that category. I'm going to be audacious enough to put myself in that category. They're making us look bad. And so we, as men, and people who identify as men, this is including transgender men, all right, we need to stand up for our fairer sisters. We need to be in their corner. We need to dismantle rape culture. And we can talk about that in the future. What does that mean? All right. We need to be in their corner. We need to stand with them. That is our responsibility. Right. So that's something I want to talk about. If we're talking about responsibility as the second R, it's just a little example of something I'd like to talk about in the future. Hopefully that wasn't too controversial to talk about right now, just giving you a little bit of a, a taste or a snip of that. Third R is, and this is going to be a short one here, righteousness. However we conceive of this, we need to be the best people we can. And this is going back to something I said earlier. To represent our communities and our religions in the best possible light. If we are Christians, we must be the best Christians we can be. If Jews, then we must be the best Jews we can be. If Muslims, the best Muslims we can be. And so on. We're going to return to this. Right? Once again, these are, these are not fully thought out just yet. This is, um, this is a work in progress. But I want to share this with you. The fourth R, respect. In our dealings with the other, quote-unquote the other, we need to show respect. One of the first things we hear among gang culture youth is that they have often felt, quote-unquote, dissed by somebody, disrespected by their adversaries, by life, and they're willing to kill for this. We need to show respect for all human beings, regardless of their religious or political standpoint. And I, I gave that example of, of gag culture because respect is something important if people are willing to kill for it. I'm not saying you should, you should kill somebody if they, uh, if they knock the, the ice cream cone out of your hands, but I'm saying that people need respect. They want respect. And we need to show all humans res- respect. If this is the starting point of every interaction, every conversation, we will be further along than we have been in the past. All right? So that's just my brief overview of the four R's that are the prescription for the world, prescription for perfect health and happiness for the world. That's just a start. And I hope that you have thought about that a little bit. We can think about it in the future. So on the next topic, as we start to close down, I I want to start a tradition. I'd like to ask you to take a look at certain things, go out, Google things, read about them. And I want to mention some people. I want to give a quote-unquote shout-out to people. Right now, I want to ask you to take a look at the work of Arno Michaelis, A-R-N-O, Michaelis, spelled Michael with an I-S at the end, and Pardeep Kaleka, P-A-R-D-E-E-P, K-A-L-E-K-A, who are part of the Serve to Unite movement. These are two amazing people who are part of an amazing movement. Um, Just a little bit of a jog your memory. In 2012, um, I believe it was in, um, in or near Milwaukee, Wisconsin, there was a Sikh Gurdwara or Sikh temple. You're familiar with the Sikh religion. <clears throat> that was um, assaulted and shot up by a white supremacist guy, a terrorist, we might say, um, named Wade Michael Page. Um, he killed a number of Sikhs in that Gurdwara. I believe he killed six people, if I recall. But the son, the surviving son of one of the, the victims, uh, was a man named Pardeep Kaleka, he has joined up with Arno Michaelis. Arno Michaelis is a former white supremacist who claims to have been in some ways responsible, indirectly responsible, for Wade Michael Page's um, training and upbringing in the white supremacist movement. That, that he founded a, 
uh, a particular group that trained Wade Michael Page. Uh, of course, many years prior to Wade Michael Page committing this this act of, of horror and terror. But uh, Arno Michaelis had, had changed his tune. He, he reformed himself, having formerly been a white supremacist. And um, uh, even before uh, this particular incident in 2012, he was working to, uh, to train people to, um, to dismantle hatred. Um, since that particular event in 2012, he has partnered with um, Pardeep Kaleka, who are part of this, this new movement. I think they're amazing people. They've done amazing stuff. One, one thing that I want to mention to you, something that um, Arna Michaelis had, had said, he defines hatred as the willful withholding of compassion. And I think that's very, very important. That's very interesting. We have to have compassion for all people. Um, he was quoting someone. He was saying that um, a Marxist that he had been speaking to at one point said that, I will never have compassion for any Nazi. And in light of that, the notion of hatred being the willful withholding, willful denial of compassion. And I think that we need to have compassion for all people, even the people that we don't like so much, even the people who are on the opposite end of the socio-political, rather the political and ideological spectrum, the haters. We need to have compassion for the neo-Nazis, we need to have compassion for whoever is on the opposite end of the spectrum. Even the people with Molotov cocktails in their hands. Why? Because they're suffering. There's something wrong with them. There's something wrong and we have to be able to get through to them and to show them that violence and hatred are not the way. I'm not talking about you shouldn't defend yourselves. I'm talking about, and I think we all know the difference between this. All of us who are in our right minds. The difference between attacking innocent people versus defending yourself if somebody comes at you with a knife and a gun. We're not talking about pacifism. I don't know if I believe in pacifism, you know, a strict pacifism, letting somebody harm you if they come at you with, uh, with a weapon. But we're not even talking about that. We're talking about having compassion for people who are suffering. So um, we can come back to that in the future. bottom line is that everybody has a story. Everybody comes from somewhere. And some of the most hate-filled people themselves have suffered tremendously. And we need to understand them. And work with them as fellow human beings. And have respect for them. That's going to be part of this um, part of this movement's success, I believe. So, I would also like to ask you to take a look at the Institute for Religious Tolerance, Peace, and Justice's website. Take a look at what they do. I encourage you to support what they do, financially or physically. Go march with them. Be a volunteer. It's a great organization. I should know. I founded it. Once again, I will remind you my opinions expressed here are not necessarily those of that organization. The IRTPJ is bigger than me, and I do not speak exclusively for the Institute. But many of my personal ideas have influenced the IRTPJ's mission, and there is significant overlap. So I believe it's worthwhile to support them while you also might enjoy my work separately. Um, anyway, so uh, 
I'm going to close up right now, but I want to ask you to please continue to listen to me in the future. I'm going to try to keep these podcasts to well under an hour in the future, maybe somewhere about 45 to 50 minutes. Right now we've gone a little bit over because it's the first episode. This is so consider it this is the this is the pilot episode. Um, and I hope that you've understood, appreciated, enjoyed some things that I've said. Hopefully there's a little bit of entertainment value in there. I try to keep my my teaching and my lecturing a little bit light a little bit of levity in there. I try to have fun. I think it's important for us to have fun. Right? This is a world full of a lot of pain and a lot of misery, but there's a lot of beauty in our world. There's a lot of fun. There's a lot of humor. That's one of the things that I I think that I enjoy about cultural Judaism the most is its preoccupation with humor. Absurd humor. And we can be humorous about all sorts of things, even the most horrible things. Um, I love... Um, Mel Brooks, the director, producer, actor, writer, Mel Brooks, who himself fought against Hitler during World War II. And part of his reason for doing comedy about Nazis after the war, of course, as he began his comedic career in, in entertainment, he felt that one of the best things we can do is take away their power by ridiculing them, by making fun of them. Now, Obviously, some people may have some problems with that, but I think that this is important. This is important for us to remember the humor in all things. Obviously, you don't laugh at a person as they are bleeding to death, all right? You stitch them up first, you take them to the hospital, and maybe five years down the line, you and them, you and they can laugh together about how silly it was when they cut themselves on that knife, when they slipped on the banana peel, and so forth, all right? There's a time and a place for humor. But it is, it is very important to keep that sense of humor. So anyway, hopefully we'll have some humor in this program in the future. Uh, you are welcome to email me at info at drarikgreenberg.com. So that's info, I-N-F-O, at D, as in dog, R as in Romeo, A as in Apple, R as in Romeo, I as in India, K as in Kilo, G as in Golf, R is in Romeo, E is in Echo, E is in Echo, N is in November, B is in Bravo, E is in Echo, R is in Romeo, G is in Golf.com. Anyway, so I want to wish you a wonderful day. I want to wish you all the blessings that this universe and our Heavenly Parent has to offer. And I hope that you will write to me in the future, email me, and let me know kinds of conversations that you'd like to have, topics we should talk about. Um, in the future, we might even set up something where we'll have like a live recording and we'll get some of you on the phone and we can chat together and we can have a good time and joke around and talk about how to make the world a better place. Anyway, so I hope you have enjoyed this. I have enjoyed this and, uh, have a lovely day and, um, let's focus on perfect health and happiness. God bless you and take care. This is Dr. Eric Greenberg signing out.